Learn the multi-jurisdictional issues and challenges facing our international businesses with insights and interviews in a global perspective with Dr. Adriana Sanford, coming up right now. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Adriana Sanford. Our special guest for today is Peter Lambert. Peter is a senior vice president of the M&A group of Willis Towers Watson. The Willis Group is a global multinational risk management insurance brokerage and advisory company. They operate in more than 140 countries, and they're one of three of the largest insurance brokers in the world. Peter is going to talk to us about what his group does in a merger or acquisition. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, my role is covering private equity firms on the West Coast. We tend to work on the buy side of a transaction, although we do work with strategic buyers as well. Typically, what we're doing on behalf of a private equity client is we're doing buy side insurance due diligence. We're looking at all the property and casualty. We're looking at the employee benefits and really any issue insurance related that causes an impact on the financial statements after the deal is done. So we'll look for big issues, small issues, missing coverages, pricing, et cetera. In addition to the due diligence, we will have uh, the use of deal-enabling products. One product that your buyers may have heard of is rep and warranty insurance. And since this is a seller's marketplace, and many times the seller has the upper hand in negotiation, uh, they will ask the buyer to come in with a rep and warranty insurance product in tow mainly because no seller really knows everything about their company, and there may be those inadvertent breaches of reps and warranties. And typically in the deal structure, you might have an escrow set up to handle all, all those, but this rep and warranty product can save dollars set aside on behalf of the seller just because this is an A-plus balance sheet put up by the insurance company to cover those risks. So deal-enabling products is the second thing that we do. And... Thirdly, after the transaction is done, assuming that we've got a broad relationship with a private equity firm, we put together what are called portfolio insurance programs, whether it's one line of coverage like director and officers or property insurance or all lines of coverage. We take, say, 10 or 15 portfolio companies, go to the marketplace and negotiate the best pricing and form on their behalf just because of the uh, economies of scale. So it's those three things that we do primarily in a merger or an acquisition. Where does the insurance fit into the M&A equation? Well, it's, uh, it has a fit inside a merger, a divestiture, or an acquisition. And let me explain where it fits. In a merger, let's say that you've got a merger of two equals. Each, each company has its own separate insurance program. And they may be different limits, different carriers, different pricing, et cetera, and slightly different risks. What we would do in that situation is we would examine both programs and figure out, do we take one company and blend it into the existing portfolio company, or do we uh, go to the other one, or do we just create an entirely new program to cover both of them? And how long does this usually take? Well, that's a great question. It's, it's, it depends upon the information flow. Most deals that we work on have a data room, and we'll tap into that and grab the data that we need and come back with a list of missing items. But on about 99% of the deals we work on, it's difficult to get all the information that we need. Uh, so the deals can range from anywhere from 60 days up to a year. 
On a divestiture, if you've got a large conglomerate that's spinning off non-core divisions, what we would do is set up an entirely new insurance program. We like those because they need to have insurance on the first day of operation, otherwise they can't complete the divestiture. And then thirdly, if you've got a strategic buyer, you've got a company that's got an existing program set up for their company, what we will do is take a look at the add-on acquisition and blend that risk into the existing insurance program and get the economies of scale of a bigger program. So that covers merger, acquisition, and divestiture. And what are some of the big issues that you see? Well, typically insurance issues aren't so huge that they can kill a deal, but once in a while we run across a big issue like if a company has a self-insured plan with a very high deductible and they're required to set reserves aside for that, if they happen to be under-reserved by, say, a million dollars and the buyer is paying a 10 multiple, we just help them save $10 million on the purchase price. So we look for issues like that but can't always find them. This is very interesting. Is there anything else that our listeners should know about these products? Yes, absolutely. One of the key things that we do on behalf of the buyers to make sure that we draw a clear line of demarcation between the old company risk and the NUCO, that is the new ownership, because if there's a manufacturing of product and you end it as of December 31st, you want to make sure that any risk related to the products produced prior to December 31st go to the old company and the new one is transferred to the new co, the new management team. So it's all about making sure that you have only the risk that is applicable to your ownership. And no and skeletons. Other, exactly. And one of the ways that we discover some of those skeletons by taking a look at how the company grew. If you're buying a company that had previously grown through acquisitions themselves, they had purchase and sale agreements that accepted certain risks that they'd carry along with them. If you don't review those and you're three or four acquisitions down the road, you might find that you're accepting a risk that you're not comfortable with. So that's one of the things we do is our team will review the purchase and sale agreement and specifically how insurance is addressed there. A, a buyer may not even be aware of that. They may just be looking at the company that they're dealing with, at the parties that they're dealing with, not realizing there may be something way, way back there in the closet. Absolutely, and certainly their legal counsel drives that process, but since we've done collectively well over 5,000 deals, we know what to look for in terms of how insurance is addressed in the purchase and sale agreement and can make some suggestions to counsel. What causes issues in doing your analysis? Well, I'd say the first thing is we tend to be the last party that's invited to the uh, diligence squad. They will do the the business due diligence through their accounting firm. Uh, First, they'll bring in the legal team and start taking a look at all things related to legal matters. And, you know, there's about, I don't know, 10 to 20 different parties, vendors that are brought in, and we're about 19 or 20 on that list. So we're brought in at the last minute, so we've got to quickly scrub the data room and find out if there is any outstanding risk or any improvement opportunities. Other issues. You've got a company that, a management team that's uh, running a company, and if they've never been through a transaction before, it's really a daunting process because they've got to be providing data lists and responding to those 10 to 20 vendors, and that is a full-time job. So many times we find that management will hire 
part-time CFOs or people that will assist them in terms of gathering the information and responding to the diligence request. And if you bring in a professional that's used to doing this process, it's going to be much more efficient, as long as they're getting some feedback from management. What you don't want to do is have management so distracted by the process that the company earnings start to drop and they're not being profitable anymore. That causes serious impact in terms of the EBITDA and the overall price of the company. And one final thing I'll mention is if you have, and this typically doesn't happen with private equity firms because they have advisors they've used over and over again, but once in a while on a small deal, it might be a proprietary deal, you might have inexperienced counsel on the seller side or an inexperienced deal team with an investment banker. It's rare, but it happens. And if they don't really know how that process runs, it can take twice or three times as long as it normally should. Well, would you see that more with maybe smaller companies or medium-sized companies where you may have a in-house counsel that has been handling all of their day-to-day issues and has no experience with, with an actual sale? I'd say the smaller the company, um, the more likely that is to happen. If you've got a, a large company that's $500 million in revenue, an in-house counsel, and they typically work, work with a very professional law firm, that's not going to happen, most likely. So it, it's going to be with the smaller firms. Can you talk to us a little bit about the litigation buyout coverage? Yes. This is kind of a funny product. Sometimes I call it pending litigation coverage where you've got one particular issue on the balance sheet that's keeping the company from going to its its next step in its financial life, sort of the proverbial black cloud. If you've got a whole group of, of claims that are sitting on the balance sheet, we have a product called litigation buyout coverage, where for a substantial premium, you can get those claims off the balance sheet and take the next step in the company's life, whether it's an IPO, uh, a refinancing, or the sale of a company. So that's what litigation buyout coverage does. It's a very complex product, not that often used, as it is expensive, but if it's something that needs to be done to uh, move on in your financial life, it's a great product. And then finally, kind of the standard run and mill uh, products for a deal, the runoff coverages. In every single transaction we work on, we have director and officers on the whole suite of Phoenix coverages, the financial coverages, where you've got runoff coverage. If there's a claim pre-close, it will be covered by the old director and officer's policy. If they don't have that, then we'll buy runoff coverage that covers any claim pre-close for a period of six years after the deal closes. You've got to have that in, in place because that helps draw that clear line of demarcation between old company risk and new company risk. You also, in manufacturing firms, have product liability runoff because if the private equity firm buys a manufacturing company, and again, the close date we'll say is December 31st, they want to make sure that the old company management and their processes are covered by their old product liability runoff coverage, and they cover only claims on a go-forward basis. So those are the three main ones that we talk about regularly. So there's there's a lot that goes into this, and there's a lot of detail, and and it seems a little bit, you know, more complex than you know most people would think. What there are a lot of insurance brokerage firms out there um, mm-hmm. that handle these. Where you know how do we know, or where do we draw the line as to what we're doing, and and making sure that we're actually 
getting all the coverage and getting everything that we need? How do we protect ourselves in these types of situations when, if we don't have a lot of experience with M&A work? Sure, and most people are surprised, or at least when I started talking about this 30 years ago, people were shocked that an insurance broker would be talking about risks related to mergers and acquisitions. Now, it's fairly commonplace, but it's become so commonplace that almost every insurance broker you talk to, from the international brokers down to the small ones down the street, they will say that they have a specialty in M&A. Very few brokers actually do. The big ones do, and a few specialty regional brokers do have a practice. But if they don't know what they're doing, they can really foul up the process. Another thing that uh, we run across is insurance brokers. My industry is plagued with the history of competing on price. If you just sat at your phone as a management team, you'd probably get three calls a week from a broker saying, let us look at your insurance program. We can save you money. They don't know anything about your risk. They don't know anything about your insurance program or the pricing, and they use that pitch. Um, That's a bad sign because even though everybody wants to spend less on insurance, they want to make sure they get the right coverages in place so that when they do have a claim, they get it paid. So those are things that I run into in the industry at large. That's that's good information. Is there anything else that we that I can ask you before our time is up? Anything else that you can give us? Any information that um, we haven't sure. discussed that you think is important? Let me just dig down on working on a carve out for a brief minute. Uh, okay. It's it's a unique process when you're carving out one particular non-core division out of a conglomerate. Um, the reason is the very first day of operations, they need to have an insurance program in force. Property casualty, for sure, they need to have coverage in force. Many times you might be able to, on the workers' comp and also on the employee benefits, the health care coverage, you might be able to negotiate a transition services agreement uh, with the seller that they'll handle those claims as well as IT and back office operations for a period of 60, 90, 180 days to to make a a reasonable transition because those are more difficult to set up if you've got employee enrollment, et cetera. Uh, So that's one. You need insurance day one of the operations. Secondly, the company's been operating under the assumption that the allocation from the corporate parent was accurate, and they've been given these numbers But what they're failing to think about is the fact that if there's a billion revenue company that's spinning off a 50 million entity, that billion revenue company has purchasing power that that smaller spinoff will not have. So about nine times out of ten, the spend that they're going to have as a separate entity, as a new entity, it's going to be higher than the allocated numbers from the parent. Interesting. Well, thank you, Peter. This has been great information for us. We're at the end of our show. We've been listening to Peter Lambert, SVP for the Mergers and Acquisitions Group for Willis, Towers, and Watson. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. You have been listening to A Global Perspective with Dr. Adriana Sanford on the Manufacturing Talk Radio Network at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.